Every one of us has that moment where we come in contact with someone who so dramatically impacts our lives that we feel connected to them from that point forward. That's how I feel about today's guest on Negotiate Your Life. Judge Rosemary Aquilina is the most amazing woman that you are ever going to meet. Not only did she earn her Juris Doctorate degree from Western Michigan Thomas M. Cooley Law School in 1984 after earning her bachelor's degree from Michigan State, after 20 years of honorable service, she was a JAG officer. She's retired from the Michigan Army National Guard. She served four years as a chief judge of sobriety court. She's been a judge in the 55th District Court, and then she was elected to serve as a 30th Circuit Court, where she has been presiding for the last 13 years. Judge Aquilina is a law professor, and she is a motivational speaker. Get ready. You're about to be motivated. She's the author of Feel No Evil, Triple Cross Killer, and All Rise. And her memoir, Just Watch Me, was just released December of 2020. She did that in partnership with Audible and Reese Witherspoon. Judge Aquilina is the mother of five children. She has three grandchildren, and she lives still to this day in Michigan. I am so excited for you to learn how to negotiate your life with someone like this. So let's get started with Judge Rosemary Aquilina. What's up? I'm Jeremy and you're listening to the Negotiate Your Life podcast where every single week we help you negotiate the twists and the turns in life as you move forward towards your dream. We always say it around here, the end of the road is just a bend of the road unless you fail to make a turn. I am really pumped. I know I say that a lot, but I actually mean it. I'm really pumped for today. It was not by accident that I met this person at the beginning of the pandemic when I got a chance to share a little bit of my story in a forum that was created. And this person just stood out to me and said some things that really impacted me and got me thinking about what I have to offer, which is partly why this podcast exists. It's partly why I've taken the the steps that I've taken because someone who didn't know me saw something different in me. And I followed her. I have reached out and asked her questions at times. She's been so gracious to meet with me. And then she said yes when I said, will you just share on my podcast? And I was blown away. And so I'm really excited for you guys to meet Judge Rosemary Aquilina. And she has been known for a lot of things. She is, you know, you already heard her bio. She has done so much. And I want to talk to her about some of the things she's had to negotiate in life to to accomplish what she's accomplished. And so thank you so much, Judge Aquilina, for being here today. Thank you. And you just give me too much credit. You have all of these sparkling dynamic things within you. I just brought a few of them to light for you. I think we all have these things inside us that we know, but maybe we don't bring them to the surface. But when someone else mentions it, they shine and you certainly shine. Oh, thanks, Judge. I want to ask you, I mean, you you have a lot that goes on. So you've got your family, you are an author, and you're a judge. I want to start with the judge. So what drove your desire to become a judge? When, when did you go, ooh, I want to sit on the bench. I want to do that. I've always wanted to sit on the bench when I made the decision to become a lawyer. And I actually didn't willfully make the decision to be a lawyer. I always wanted to be a writer. And my father, who's a doctor, thinks everybody in the world should be a doctor. And believe me, there's not a human being or an animal who wants me to be a doctor. I don't want that <laughs> career at all. And... Um, in the heat of me telling my father I was going to college to be a writer, to be an English and journalism major, he said, how are you going to support yourself? And it was just really down on me. And so I blurted out, 
fine, I will go to law school. And I did that to defy him because doctors overall hate lawyers. And of course, then once that came out of my mouth, I thought, yep, and I'm going to be a judge and I'll show you. And ultimately, it worked out really well because I love my career and the people I serve and work with, but it's also just a fountain of story material. So it certainly hasn't hurt my writing. Oh, that's so, that's so interesting. So we say in, in my business, we often say the obstacle is the way. And that obstacle actually filled your repertoire with lots of stories that you can tell. And, and absolutely. And I'm a person. And I think like you who looks at the glass half full, not half empty. And I look at how can, and I fill it more. How can I do it better, greater, faster, go farther and challenge myself with that? And then I'm always really internally proud. I don't care if no one else is proud of me. I'm proud of myself. And I think that when you negotiate anything in life, if you want to help someone, you first have to help yourself. Oh, I, we could stop there, but I'm not going to. So <laughs> um, I, w- I would love to know, like, what would you say are some of the most rewarding aspects of, of presiding over a courtroom. What have you loved the most over your several years of being a judge? I always invite defendants back to show me the magnificent things that they've done. I always say, you know, you've done these horrible things. You've owned them. You've told me about them. And I dig deeper than what they think. And maybe what some people think I should do. I'm not a therapist, but everyone has a backstory. And that backstory drives us forward. It can be positive or negative. So I want to know what drove them, what happened, what didn't happen, what what should have happened. And we have a conversation. And then I say, you can do better. I know you can. I know that you are going to just make such great contributions. You come back and show me the magnificent things you've done. And not one or two, but literally hundreds have come back and they've shown me their artwork, their music contracts, their healthy babies. I am sent 10 year AA coins and things like that. And they say, because of you, you were the first person to tell me I mattered because of you, I did this. And I always tell them, no, you did it. You had it within you. You just needed someone to tell you that you mattered. And I see you as this you know, huge productive force that's positive, not negative. And please stay on the path, keep coming back. And it's amazing what they accomplish. And I also say that to victims too, because victims think that because they were assaulted, because they were brutalized in, in, or, you know, their home was um, entered, their vehicle was stolen, whatever it is that they've also lost something. And so I invite them as well to, reach out to me for a kind word to tell them that they do matter, that uh, they didn't do anything wrong. And I think these conversations really catapult healing regardless of where you are and who you are in life. And for me, it's really the most rewarding thing I can give back. Oh my gosh. I love that. So you know that I used to be... um... Uh, a patrol patrol deputy. And then I went on to negotiations and I used to say to people as they're in the back of my car, this is, this is going to be a rough ride because I'm going to drop you off at some point and I'm going to leave and you're going to have to stay as we're driving to the jail in that 20 minute drive. I would love to hear your story. I want to hear your story. And I kind of feel like I just heard that from you of you are, you are not the sum of what you've done to this point, but you are what you are capable of doing from this point forward. And right. is there any one particular 
they came back and they shared something with you and it just, it just grabbed your heart. Yes. I had a young man, he was in my sobriety court and he did really, really well. And we worked with him. You know, when you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or both, um, maybe you have mental issues, you know, and, and they haven't been addressed through self-medicating. There's so many things to address with human beings. And we worked with this young man and he did really, really well. And I told him exactly what I told you earlier. You're capable. You can do this. I believe in you and come back. And he did come back. What he did is he sent me this beautiful piece of artwork. It was a picture of a magnificent painting. I, I can't even, I couldn't even visualize it, let alone draw one stroke of it. And he said, because of you, I'm reaching my full potential. I am now working with a very famous artist and this is what I've accomplished. I'll be doing so much more and I hope someday to paint your portrait. And I was very honored. I said, you don't have to do that. You've just honored me by sending me a copy of this and telling me the great things you've done. There's so many things in the world that are bad and you are such a great story, so motivating. Can we help others? Can I reach out to the newspaper? Because I think your story is phenomenal. And he said, well, okay, because he wasn't really sure. I said, well, thank you. So I reached out to the Lansing State Journal and they said, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And they met with him. And then he contacted me again. And they had done a big Sunday spread and put his artwork and all about him and who's working for and all of that. And then he sent me another letter and he said, the most remarkable thing is seeing this in the newspaper and watching my mother cry of joy. She cried out of joy. And I can't thank you enough because I am now seeing what I had done before and now what I can do. And the fact that you and I have touched my mother's heart means more to me than anything. And that's really the rippling effect of a human being. If we touch their soul, they'll touch others and they'll keep on giving. And there's countless stories I could tell you, you know, for weeks on end like that. Sure. But each human being is valuable. And we just need to recognize that everybody makes mistakes, including me. And the idea is to negotiate your way out of them as best as you can and send positive vibes out there and do better and learn from your mistakes. We're all human. Yes. Oh, thank you for that. Oh, that's amazing. I love that she cried with tears of joy and he hadn't seen that. And hadn't seen it. That's the positive. But you, this can't have been an all of them up into the right journey that everything just kept going well. And it was, it was so good all along the way. And I know that you are an advocate for so many things. And I, I would love to hear what has been some of the more difficult situations you've faced. How's it, how's that um, negotiation battle been between your internal values? Because you do have s- such great values battling that are negotiating those internal values and at the same time along with your requirements as a judge. So when have you found yourself stuck between what you believe is truth and what takes place because it's part of the system? How, how's that been for you? Yeah, you know, people think that I'm really harsh when I send someone to prison for life uh, and that I can do it so easily. It's not an easy thing for me to do. I have to follow the law And we all have families out there. When there is someone who can't make it safe in this world, they have to be behind bars. I have to consider the rehabilitation of defendant, protection of society, deterrence of others. Um, Is the sentence proportional? Can he be or she be punished and then get out or 
will they still remain unsafe? And I've had just thankfully not hundreds, but I have had more than several cases where I've had to send people to life for prison. It is not, or to prison for life, sorry, switch that. See, that's, it just gets me emotional. It is not an easy thing for me to do. I don't think it's easy for any judge to do, but I have to balance that. And I really have to hold my gut together to say to someone, and you're spending the rest of your life behind bars. And keep in mind, I know full well, they have families, they have friends, they often have children out there. But can they live with the rest of us and be safe? No. And it really is a tough thing. I worry about them and what will happen in prison. But I also always send a message to the wardens through my sentencing that they should receive rehabilitative programs, mental health help, uh, sexual uh, assault training uh, help, you know, work with animals. There's a lot of really good animal programs in prison because animals, you know, they love you for who you are. They don't care the color of your skin or the crime you've committed or how old you are, how much money you have. They just love you unconditionally. And so many people have never experienced that need to go through that as well. So I always look at the person and I at least try to have some orders so that they can have a fruitful life in prison, even if they can't live with the rest of us. And for those who do get out, you know, and I've even received letters from people in prison saying, thank you for being so kind during my sentencing and for hearing and seeing me. So I know that what I do works, but I do have a heart under the robe and I do feel that pain, Yeah, but I have a job to do. Um, what I just heard from you that I want, I want everyone to grasp. I wish we could all grasp it because right now, especially during this season of our, of our countries, um, during this time, there are so many people that it's either one way or the other. Either you, you, you. If you're this way, you hate this. If you're this way, you hate this. It, do, it doesn't matter. And what I just heard you say is, you can, you actually are, a, you're an advocate for the victim and for the defendant. And, yes. and and both are human. Both have flaws. Both have amazing potential. And man, wouldn't it be so great if if we could grasp that that it doesn't matter the color of your skin and it doesn't matter the color of your voting decisions you're a human and and we you can you can be an advocate for both things that that to me is really powerful thank you for sharing that and you also shared that you have a family and you think of your family so i want to know about your family life you've got young you've got younger kids i think your kids are even younger than my kids and what is your process for taking off the robe if you will but mentally taking off the robe and then be going from judge aquilina to somebody's mom and and yeah. what's that like for you well so first of all i have five children and they and three grandchildren and my children range in ages yes i know i'm a little crazy but i love my kids <laughs> um, they range in ages from 40 down to the twins who are 11 and the thing about my children is, let me get back to the bench and being a lawyer and all the things you know, I served in the military. There's, I do motivational speaking like you do a lot of things. And ultimately, my whole goal in life is that everyone around me should be treated as my family. So although I have my actual blood family, I think my neighbors, the people in front of me, you, that we're all family and in this together. So I try to live my life that way. And in order to really prioritize my family, I have to 
prioritize my own well-being. I have to actively engage in self-care, whether it's sleep, diet, exercise, uh, social activities, other interactions, so that I stay fresh for myself, for them, and for my work. And so I try to do that. And sometimes I have alone time, and or I cook, I write, I sew, I paint, and sometimes I do it with my kids, and we just laugh. We play basketball, and I'm not very good anymore at my age, but we just have fun. And so I think that when you're present for yourself in every way, you can be present for your family in every way. And I can tell you, it is difficult. Um, My kids are trying my patients every single day. My 11-year-old just decided she wanted to drive, and she banged up the car. So now we're hiding the car keys. Uh, We're lucky. I'm just grateful. And how I turned that around was I was grateful she wasn't dead because it was a horrible scene. And thankfully, the car is battered, but she's not. And so you can take that into a negative, but a car is only a car and I can replace it all day long. I can never replace her. So we had a chat. I also have my father who has Parkinson's and my mother has a heart condition and they live, uh, we all live together. So they never have to go to the nursing home. And if you think it's not trying to live with your parents, try it for a week and with the mindset of I'm going to do that until they die. It was a part of conditioning where we all had to recondition ourselves that we're going to make this work for the better of our family. And when we first did it, this is now almost 20 years ago, they, they would come up and say, we're moving. And I'd say, no, I'm moving. Um, but then we learned how to negotiate our lives and blend them together, be separated when we needed to. And it really is all about managing stress and anxiety, making sure there's always self-care, time apart, and valuable time together. You're right. Taking care of ourselves first. I think that's so good. I used to have to have a system for me of coming home and kind of, how am I going to detox so that I, so that I don't bring that toxic environment into the house with me? So how do I detox on my way home? And I had to find little tricks for myself. Some of it was listening to something that was really uplifting, something really edifying. Sometimes I would call my wife and just go, Hey, I just want to share with you this on my way home so that I get it out now. So I walk in the door as dad and I don't walk in the door as angry cop. Yeah. That ride home can be really important. I listen to books on tape. Sometimes I just blare the music. So I have a terrible singing voice, but I might be singing only to myself. So I don't offend the rest (laughs) of the world, but, um, but you have to sometimes let that out. And the other thing, and I don't know how your family was, maybe you can tell me, but when I'm at the table and obviously if there's an ongoing case, I can't, talk about it. But oftentimes my mother will say, got any interesting cases? Cause they love hearing about it. And I, even if it's something I can talk about, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to bring that pain to the center of the kitchen table mm-hmm. and I want to release it. So I try not to talk about my work. What do you do? Or yeah, what did you do? I, the way that I handled, so my son, my oldest son really wanted to, well, still does wants to go into law enforcement. And so he's got the scanner apps on his phone and he's listening all the time. And, oh, dad, was that you? And, and so when I would come home, there was always, do you have any good stories? Do you have, what did happen today? And you're right. There's things that we see and hear that we can never unsee and never unhear. And we really don't want to talk about them or add them to our family's life. So I tended to answer the question. Yep. It was a busy day. Yep. That, yeah, it was a busy day. Not, and I would tell them, it's not something I really want to talk about with you right now. Maybe another time we can talk about it. And, and I would leave it at that with my wife. One of the things that, that we had an agreement on certain things when things were very intense, 
I would always call her because she also watches the news. And I would always call her, especially with the negotiations world, because you're, that's going to be on the news. So she would see that. Right. And I would, I would let her know, number one, I'm okay physically. And sometimes but I'm not really okay emotionally. Is it okay if I just share what I'm feeling? Not necessarily the details, but what am I feeling? And that was really important for me. And it was actually really important for her, but not so much the details of any case. I never like to talk about, because oftentimes they don't, just like you, there's there's amazing triumphant moments um, that happen in court, I'm sure. And then there's those moments that, man, this is, no matter how it turns out, this was horrible. And yeah. And so even with me, the same thing, coming home, there were a lot of moments that we didn't talk the person off the rooftop or we didn't get them to come out of their house. And those are devastating moments. So I didn't talk about the details. I talked more about the feelings. That's how I can handle it. Yeah. And let me just say kudos to your wife, because I think it's really important for all of us to stay connected to what you're feeling and thinking and for you to be able to share that Mm -hmm. with her and for her to care about it, to actually truly listen instead of saying, yeah, yeah, another day in your life. Because so many times those around us uh, blow it off because they don't understand the thinking and feeling of what we do. And I just want to commend her for that real connection with you. Because without that, marriages, you know, go away. Mine certainly went away. Yeah. And I'm blessed. I know I'm blessed because she, I married up for sure. And, and I'm very, and you know what you, 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 we've been talking about, like you said, I see everyone as family. And so that's part of what I want to do is I, I take care of myself and I see everyone as family. I think part of negotiating life is having people in your life that you can negotiate your feelings with. And you've got to have that, whether it's a spouse, significant other, whether it's just a friend. Um, I just think you've, you've got to, and I, for a long time, wasn't for that it was going into first responder life that made me realize, man, I need people. I need normal people in my life that I can just be myself with. And so that's how I, part of how I negotiate life. And I'm grateful that right. she's there. I really Well, am. you can't negotiate or navigate anyone else's life until you've done that for yourself. Yeah. It's really, and something I often say is like the airlines say, you know, put on your, your safety vest before you help someone else. If you don't have your safety vest on for life, you cannot help someone else. So the other part of what I do is uh, I make sure that I have a couple of good friends. There's a therapist if I need it. I have people I can turn to who are objective and who can say, yeah, you didn't do that so well today. And then I can reevaluate, reassess, and change and make sure that whatever self-defeating moods or attitudes I might have in the moment, I can recognize them sometimes with the help of others and then manage that stress and reevaluate and um, reconnect with myself and be more positive so that I'm uplifted instead of brought down. Because if you are depressed, how can you help someone else? Oh yeah. It's really hard to help a person out of the pit when you're sitting in your own really hard. Right. And I agree hundred percent. I'm sorry. There's so many good things. I'm, I'm going, okay, this is an entire training here, right here. This is like the people need this. Well, let's do it. I know we need to. So you, you, um, you said early on though, I want to talk about your passion because you said early on, I wanted to be a writer. I want to write. And that's my passion. it's your passion. And so 
We could talk a long time about the things that have happened on the bench. Everybody knows you are famous for a lot of cases. And so, but I want to know about this passion for writing. So you've always wanted to write. When did you say, okay, now I'm going to do it. I'm going to write my first novel. When did you decide to do that? You know, God creates us and we are all, I think, this blank slate. And for me, I grew up with no money and not even money for storybooks, right? And so my brother, who's 11 months and two days younger than me, would always say, read me a story. And and I couldn't even read. I was, you know, two, three years old. And I remember sitting on the stoop of my grandparents' making up stories, pretending I could read with the TV guide. Remember that? We don't have that anymore except online. I remember. remember. You know, and the cereal boxes and all of that. And he would just bring me something and say, read me a story. So I would make up these great stories. And there was nothing better. I remember, you know, being two, three years old thinking, God, what a great feeling. How powerful is this to make him feel better by just telling him some stupid story I made up, right? And so I always, I knew then I wanted to be a writer. Then in grade school and uh, high school and all of that, the teachers would say, well, I enter this contest or do this or that. I never won any, but I loved the challenge and the writing. Fast forward to college and, you know, I had articles printed in the newspaper and all of that with my journalism classes. And I always thought I want to write a story, but I never really had that concrete idea. And when I went to law school, that was miserable in terms of writing because my professors So never feel defeated. Here's me in law school and I'm writing, you know, what I think is the answer. And it's the answer, except that every single professor, and this is anonymous. So this was something I had to keep in my mind. Every single professor wrote, this is not an English class, the facts, stick to the facts and only the facts. (laughs) And I just thought, oh no. So I had to really take all that creative side of me and stick it on a shelf and write the facts. Then after law school, in order to de-stress, because again, I've told you my whole life has really been about self-care. I did self-care before it had that common name. Okay. And so on my my first job was working for a state senator and we were very busy and I, I had just so many things to do. And I would just shut my door on my lunch hours and thought, I don't need to go out to lunch. And I started writing and taught myself again to write. And it was my happy place. And then ultimately Feel No Evil came out of that. And then Triple Cross Killer came out of my son who was babysitting his sister. And I said, write some Santa letters. And he came, when I came home, he said, mom, what happens if these letters go get into the wrong hands? And I sat down and said, great story. And then with all rise, you know, I was bullied on the bench. You think that judges can't be bullied. We are bullied. There's bullying in every workplace, including the judiciary. I was bullied by the chief judge and there's not much I could do about it. I tried, no one helped. Uh, There were a lot of things I did. And so one day I thought, okay. And I started All Rise. And of course the chief judge dies in that book because in fiction, I can kill off anybody who bothers me. (laughs) And again, great stress reliever. And it's a, you know it's a, it's a fun book. It's it's um, a cozy mystery. I'm I'm working on this the second one, and I, all these people keep saying, "Is this character or that character going to be in it?" Because we really you know attach to that. And I wrote there the characters in that book have characteristics of people I know, and so they're really lively and alive, and people actually love them, and so do I. So it's just a lot of fun, great stress reliever. And, you know, if you want to live on Fantasy Island, just write. You don't have to be a great writer. Just write. And it's just so much fun to me. So you've written those three. You didn't mention a fourth that you've actually written. And so I I want you to talk a little bit about your memoir that you wrote. So um, 
Reese Witherspoon and Hello Sunshine, her company, came to me and said, we want to know how is it you know and have known to ask, what would you like me to know and how can I help? When all these other judges are saying, why did you wear that short skirt? Why were you there? Uh, You know, how could you? And how did you know? And I said, you know, I've always asked that uh, since my military days and my legal days at practicing. And I always got information from people more than anybody else. I mean, I have had attorneys approach and say, judge, how did you get that information from my client? I met with him a dozen times. I never got that information. But when you ask a shaming and blaming question, like why, I think why needs to retire to science. You know, why shames and blames? Why didn't you come home on time? Why didn't you do your homework? Why didn't you finish your plate? Why are you wearing that makeup? It shames and blames. And so I've always asked, what would you like me to know and how can I help? And it has taken me miles and miles. So they really wanted to know the backstory of that. So what was born is a book called Just Watch Me. And it's really my life journey. And I talk about some of the cases I've had that have really um, also taught me lessons or where that has made a difference. So it's um, it's about my life. And um, I hope people enjoy it. It's, a, it's really daunting to talk about some of your most private moments mm. and put them out there on the public shelf. Yeah. I, I just hope it helps people. Well, I'm, I'm already, I'm already on it. Like literally as we talked this morning before we, we launched this podcast live, I already downloaded it off audible. Oh, thank you. So I'm excited because you just answered for me and I have not heard you say that on anything that we've been on together. You just answered for me the reason that I'm so like connected to you I hate the question of why. I yeah. hate it. Even right. Simon Sinek, who wrote the book, Start With Why, in his second book, Find Your Why, tells people it's a really hard question to answer because it just it's either negative, like why did you do that, or yes. why didn't you do that, or it's almost impossible for your brain to actually conjure up an answer for it. Your brain doesn't think in why. Your brain really thinks well it in what. Up. Yes, and it thinks well in what. So when yeah. I, um, my wife and I have a, have a, a health and wellness business and oftentimes people struggle on the weekends, structure is difficult on the weekends. Yeah. We started by asking, well, why did you eat the pizza? And the answer was always the same because it was there. Why wouldn't right. I? I wanted it. But when I started to ask questions like, well, what was happening before you ate the pizza? What did you feel after you ate the pizza? Suddenly yeah. a whole world opened up and right. same with you, like you know, those, those attorneys, yeah, those attorneys probably never asked the question. What am I not asking that I should know? Right. And, and it's really important. My son, um, Michael, one of the twins, a couple summers ago, we were up North and his sister took his blanket from him. That was on the back of the couch. I think every house has a blanket on the back of the couch. And he came crying to me and said, Marissa took the blanket and without thinking about it, stupid me said, we have so many blankets. Why don't you just get another one? And I heard it and couldn't stop the train from rolling out. And my, he was nine at that time, stood at me with in tears and said, you just blamed me. Uh... And he was actually the victim of it. And it really put me in my place. And there's other words that I have learned, like if, if you do that, then that is such a negative. And what you can do is turn that around to say, when you do that, you will. And that turns it into a positive immediately. And the mood changes. And 
if people who are upset finally think, oh yeah, you know, that's right. Or instead of saying, I am upset that, you can say, I am proud of you for, mm. or I am thankful that, you know, it's because when you start with a negative, you know, I am not any good in math, but um, if you've got a negative, negative numbers are going to be negative numbers, mm-hmm. right? But you add a positive, and eventually that positive overtakes the negative, and before you know it, you've only got positive. Yes. And that's really the way I have tried to talk with people on the bench, tried to deal with my family and friends, and it is so fruitful. It's mm-hmm. uh, it, it's mind-boggling that it took me you know, decades to learn it. But now that I've learned it, I also share it in my motivational speaking and my books and other things because it's so important. I am so grateful for our time today. Thank you so much. So I want to ask, because you do speak, you have your books, you have so many things going on. If, If people want to get a hold of your books, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm on, all my books are on Amazon and just watch me is only on audible, but all the books are on audible. I have uh, large print and small print and ebook and, and all of that. They're a lot of fun. You can contact me uh, author at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and um, I'm doing a podcast called warrior women speak with Sherry Botwin. A therapist is kind of interesting. She talks on the psychology of things. I talk on the judiciary of things and just mom things. And it's a great speak. And um you know, I think before they look at uh, what I'm doing, they ought to listen to everything you're doing because you are my motivator. Oh, <laughs> you're so kind. You're so kind. You guys, thank you so much for your time with us. And I really want to remind you, and you heard it multiple times, just didn't hear it in my way of saying it, that the end of the road is just a bend in the road unless we fail to make a turn. So as you negotiate life, just always look for the opportunity to make those adjustments and you'll succeed. Have a great day. I know you were inspired by Judge Rosemary today, and I want you to go out, get her books, contact her. All of the information of getting a hold of her is in the show notes. You want to be connected to her. It will impact your life. 